The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. It seems to me that a lot of self-care, wellness, and mental health at work feels like we're asking people to fix themselves. Well, guess what? This doesn't work. Even as organizations have worked hard to decrease stigma around mental health and increase awareness and conversations, it kind of feels like they leave people on their own to handle many of our struggles, with the help, of course, of therapists and professionals outside. But there are structural realities we need to be aware of that really, really drag on how we feel. And the onus can't always be on individuals to fix everything. We know that work is the determinative factor for many people's mental health and well-being. But here's why fixing individual well-being is a losing game. It's because the culture of work right now keeps us activated, elevated, and drives anxiety, urgency, rules. It's really hard to protect your time and boundaries. Our guest today knows a lot about mental health and wellness as the former director of mental health and well-being for Google. When we spoke, she had recently been laid off, and so we talked about that journey. But Kristen Masco is a coach and speaker who's long focused on our relationships at work, and so we spent a lot of time thinking about how we can define our core sense of self-worth and value, and how teams can really help individuals manage well-being, time, boundaries, and better mental health. It takes the whole system. Today, Masco leads strategic people programs for Synopsis. Here's our conversation. This has been a year of a lot of personal growth for me. I mean, I can kind of share a little bit about my background leading up to this year, which is that I've always been really deeply interested in uh, psychology and the mind and the internal experience. And I studied cognitive science as an undergrad. I got my PhD in neuroscience and I've always just been fascinated by just in my own experience and in others' experience, how at the end of the day, we can sort of perceive the entire world through our minds. And, you know, if we're able to change our <laughs> it's minds, all we have. <laughs> it's all we have. And it's something that just, it sounds so obvious, but when you actually, you know, think about it. And when we've all been through these things where we go through some sort of personal growth or personal change and change the way that we're interacting with the world. And it's like, oh, wow, I went through this situation that's like this now, and it would have been different 10 years ago or something. And so I've always just found that idea really empowering and interesting and exciting. And so I've always been very interested in psychology. And you joined Google as a data scientist though, right? I did. Yeah. So I got my PhD. Originally, I was thinking of becoming a professor and and doing academic research. And, you know, one of the things I learned about myself is that I I am not patient enough to be a researcher. (laughs) (laughs) I had worked really briefly in a tech company between undergrad and grad school. And I just love like tech companies are just very fast paced, like very kind of 
you know, quick, when I say quick, I mean like months or quarters Mm -hmm. rather than years, quick turnaround between having an idea and implementing it. My approach to life has always kind of been like, are you getting warmer? Are you getting colder? Like, are you getting closer to the things that feel (laughs) resonant and meaningful? Are you getting further from them? And so I was like, all right, tech feels closer. And so, you know, I spent my first 13 years at Google in data science and then finance. I spent over a decade in finance, which ended up being just an incredible learning experience of like, I always sort of joke that that was like my crash course in organizational psychology because... (laughs) it's all about like, how do you, you know, uh, in finance, it's a very, very, I was specifically an FP&A. It's a very... What's FP&A? Oh, it stands for financial planning and analysis. It's the business partnering side of finance where you're really working with the sales team, the engineering team, the marketing team, trying to figure out what is our revenue going to be next year? What are our costs going to look like? You know, there's obviously a quantitative component and a financial component, but like the core of the role is partnering and you're like working cross-functionally and trying to look at the same question, triangulate it from a bunch of different angles and figure out what seems like the most probable outcome. And so there's a lot of perspective taking and influencing and understanding, you know, how can these four different functions have such a different point of view of the same topic? And I love that. I love perspective taking and kind of seeing the same question from a bunch of different angles and using that to kind of come to an outcome. I always say like when I coach or mentor people, I I always say that like a lot of your personal growth can come through work just because in work, you're sort of put up against situations that you wouldn't have chosen or you you know, you, you have to work with someone that maybe you have very different working styles and you wouldn't have chosen to work with them, but you sort of have to come to an alignment across what you're trying to do. And so at least in my own case, I feel like a lot of my personal growth actually came from the workplace and, and kind of came from, okay, like, how do I manage this conflict? How do I handle this relationship? How do I become more courageous in this context, whatever it might be. Yeah. And so really, really grew a lot in finance and have just a really great experience there. But then, yeah, I felt like I, I think with, with the pandemic and, you know, just kind of life stage felt like, you know, I have this whole background in psychology and I wanted to be using it more in my daily work. And so took on this role leading mental health and well-being for Google. And one of the things that really interested me and continues to interest me is like trying to move more upstream in terms of how we think about mental health and well-being in the workplace. So what does that mean? Yeah. So what I mean is like, rather than, you know, waiting until the point where someone is maybe really burned out or having an acute mental health crisis and, and providing support for that, can you in an upstream way, create a work environment that's more conducive to people thriving Mm -hmm. so that they're not running into burnout in the first place. I want to say the caveat, there's obviously plenty of mental health needs that have nothing to do with the workplace. And so those are kind of a given. Except that we know that work is the most determinative factor people report in their mental health. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I think it's kind of this really rare opportunity. Like if you think about a lot of the ways in which employers support our health, like a lot of it is is orthogonal to the work itself, right? Like, you know, your company health insurance pays for your eye surgery or something which has nothing to do with your job. And this is a really unique case where they're deeply intertwined, right? And so very interested in like, how do you actually design the work and teams and incentives such that people are able to to thrive and be productive and thrive. And one of the things that I'm sure I know, you know, this, like, but one of the things that I think is so interesting is 
I think so often we think of as a trade-off, like, you know, do I want to be productive or do I want to be well? But we know from all of the research that when people are at their most productive, they're also happy, right? (laughs) Like if you think about like being in a flow state as opposed to being, you know, panicked and overwhelmed or disengaged and bored, like when you're in that sweet spot where you're actually, you're being pushed, you're being challenged, but it's not too much. It's kind of within that sweet spot of effort is a really satisfying place to be emotionally. And it's actually when people are their most productive. And so I think we've we've kind of had this false dichotomy, whereas in reality, a lot of the same actions generate well-being and productivity. I do agree mostly with that, although I do know from my work with many anxious achievers that we are very used to being extremely productive while operating in a state of high anxiety as well. You know, really functional anxiety. But I always think that that's actually where work in many ways tries to place a lot of us now, or where a lot of us who know how to use anxiety as fuel to get a lot of things done, find ourselves, you know, to me, it seems like a lot of us work in systems that instead of rewarding flow, reward anxiety. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about that, like, you know, there's the, the Yerkes-Dodson curve mm-hmm. where on the, the x-axis is the amount of stress and the y-axis is productivity. It's this like inverted U. So if the stress is really high or really low, your productivity drops and there's the sweet spot where your productivity is the highest. But yeah, I think, I think what you're speaking to is very true that like increasingly organizations are trying to push us as close to the edge of that high stress level as they can without pushing people over the edge. Right. Or keep us in the yield yeah. of the curve for too long. I mean, the the whole point is you're supposed to get a break. Yeah. I wonder your thoughts as a neuroscientist about the pace and the urgency. Yes. And how when you were head of, of mental health and well-being at Google, was that something that you thought about? And did you have ideas about how to help that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, starting from a neuroscience perspective, like you're spot on that our brains did not evolve in the the modern world. And I think it's, I think it's really important to go back to just evolution because like our brains and bodies don't change as quickly as, as the world does. And so if you think about the context in which we, we evolved, there was not that much information coming in. And, and so we are not equipped to, to deal with the level of, of stimulation and input that we receive in the modern world. And so it can result in us being in this like perpetual, state of heightened stress, which is not good for when we know that level of cortisol is not good for us physically or mentally. And then also, I mean, there's so much research on task switching and, you know, the, the sort of myth of multitasking. We can't actually multitask. And there's, there's a lot of studies of like how much longer it takes people to do things if you're interweaving different tasks versus focusing on one thing at a time. And some of my favorite work on this is actually Cal Newport, who started as like a productivity researcher, but a lot of his work actually points back to well-being. He does a lot of work on distraction and just the number of like context switching distraction in the modern workplace. Like if you think about, I always kind of joke when I... I don't know if you've seen the TV show Mad Men, which is set in the 60s, yes. It's definitely an interesting marker of how much the workplace has progressed since the 60s in terms of (laughs) sexism and racism and drinking in the workplace and smoking in the workplace. 
But one of the things I always noticed when I watched that show is like how different the nature of work was. Like it was very serial, right? Like it was, you could only be having one conversation at a time because there was not technology to enable multiple conversations at the same time. And I think what's happened, like even, you know, within our lifetimes, like within my own work lifetime, the past couple of decades, the extent to which we're able to collaborate has exploded with all of these tools and technologies, which of course are great and have benefits. But the result of that is like our collaboration has gone from being serial and constrained. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you could have one meeting at a time and then at some point people go home for the day and there's no way to reach there's them. Nothing like you it can was, do. Yeah. No. yeah. If it's like a, if it's Friday at midnight and you know, to parallel and unconstrained. And so what I mean by parallel is like, you know, one of the things that I saw at Google, and I think is probably true at most companies, most modern companies is, you know, you'll be in a meeting on like a video meeting. And during the meeting, you'll be kind of catching up on your email. And while you're doing that, someone might be sending you a ping or at other companies like a Slack message. I mean, you're essentially having within that hour span, you've probably had 20 different collaborations in various forms. And so it's happening in parallel, which is really not good for the mind. And then it's unconstrained. So there's there's no longer a reason that it needs to fit into the day. And so I think the the sort of collective nature of it is one of the things that's most concerning because it's really hard for one individual to do anything differently because that's kind of how the entire system is working. Right. If if I set a boundary and I say, hey, guys, you know what? I had a really good day. I did, I did this, this, and this. It's five o'clock. I'm logging off. Well, good for you, but you're going to return the next morning to a full inbox and a million slacks. <laughs> and, and, yes. and then all of a sudden you feel behind and any sense of personal efficacy you had is just gone. And I think so much of the advice we've given in the well-being space is around personal boundaries. And not, I don't want to you know, like, like, it's, of course, it's important to have boundaries and to do your individual work, like for sure. But I think it's something that's like necessary, but not sufficient, right? I think you're absolutely right. If someone is like, okay, I'm just going to work nine to five and log off, they would instantly become really behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and every project they were working on, they would genuinely be the bottleneck. I think sometimes we can, you know, blame the victim a little bit, right? Like we sort of tell people, well, you're just not setting boundaries that are strong enough. And I think people are often accurately perceiving, if I were to do that, I would become the bottleneck. I don't talk about boundaries anymore in a proactive way when I give a talk mm. or about setting you know, limits on time at work because I got so much pushback when I would come into organizations mm. where they'd say, great, thanks, awesome. I didn't know that. Great. That's a fantasy you're selling me. Like, I'm not able to set boundaries. I have clients or my boss won't let me or, you know, to what we said before, if I log off, great. But if no one else does, I'm going to be totally behind. And so I do think in this country, we sort of have a tendency to say, fix yourself, right? That we're, yeah. That's very American. Yes. And this is a problem in well-being. It's why I'm, I'm beginning to hate the term self-care. It's like, sure, I can take yeah. care of myself, but if no one else is going to take care of me or themselves. Yeah. What's the point? Yes. 
Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly it. I think it's sort of an unintended byproduct of a very individualistic mindset. Mm -hmm. I really think this is a systemic and collective problem. And it's very alienating to the person that's struggling to tell them that it's within their control when it's not actually within their control. And I think it can be really freeing (laughs) for people to realize this is something that's bigger than me. And, and how do I, how do I kind of work within that system versus the kind of self-doubt that can come with if you're sort of saying, oh, I just haven't set enough boundaries. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. How did your goals as the head of mental health at Google change during your tenure and actually doing this work? Did things become important as you did the work that initially you may not have thought were important? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say my own time in mental health and well-being, and I would also say just the the mental health and well-being industry more broadly are very much on a journey. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I think, <laughs> I think in some ways I was a bit unique in the role because of my finance background. Like I came from the finance background as opposed to the traditional well-being background. And so I think my mindset was much more based in like the day-to-day work, the actual job, as opposed to the sort of benefits and offerings that you can kind of have Mm, on top of that. Not such an HR background, maybe. Yeah, I think I had a, I, I did have a less traditional HR background. And so I think that that kind of mindset of like, just sort of, you know, kind of having seen, you know, just been immersed in the organization, which I don't think these kinds of things vary that much from organization to organization. I have friends that many different companies and industries. I think once you get above a certain critical mass of employees, like maybe you know, a thousand people who are collaboratively connected, it's kind of this network effect that happens within the system. I think it's kind of a problem of our age that we're going to have to think about broadly. I don't think there's like a silver bullet by any stretch. On the one hand, I think because I had a less traditional HR background, it was, it was kind of coming at it from that different lens of like the kind of the core work as opposed to the benefits. And I think that's a shift that you're kind of seeing in the industry in general. And I think COVID really pushed that transition. I think it pushed things over the edge to where people felt like 
this is no longer working and we need to fundamentally rethink it. Like it kind of like we had that step function change in terms of what people were able to manage. And so I think there's more awareness that it comes down to the actual particulars of the role. Like there's no external body that can add something on top. It really has to be embedded and integrated into the core work. Yeah. I, I was just going to say the thing that really has struck me is I, I was at a, a talk and a, there was a, a really wonderful DEI executive and they said, you know, when you think about people often talk as, about DEI being applied as a column, right? A function in the organization, yes. but it needs to be a row. Yes. <laughs> it has to, it, it crosses through every aspect. And I think mental health is no different, right? Because it's, yes. it shows up everywhere. Yes. I was actually just going to bring in DEI because I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a very similar, I think there's a lot of analogies between DEI and well-being in the sense that they're both part of a culture, right? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of work to do in both fields, but I do think the DEI field is a little bit further ahead than the well-being field. And so one of the things we did on my prior team was we met a lot with the DEI team and said, not only how can we partner on the intersection of DEI and well-being, but also like, how can we learn from what you all have done in terms of shifting to more of that kind of row-based cultural mindset? And someone in the on the DEI team gave me this framework about this shift from program-led to leader-led. And that, you know, like initially DEI was very program led of like, you know, we are essentially as a DEI team going to put out these programs for you to consume. And increasingly, you know, and this, there's a long way to go, but it's becoming a lot more embedded in organizations where this is just part of how every manager leads, how every VP leads. And it's kind of part of the culture and they're supporting and providing resources and, and, and research and so forth, but it's really embedded in the core culture. And I think well-being is very similar. It like, it has to be embedded in the culture. And the other thing I just want to add here is like, I think we have to talk about like the intersection of well-being and productivity. Cause I think so often it becomes this pendulum there's the one extreme of the pendulum where it's like, we're paying you to work, just execute. We don't care what it does to your mental or physical health. That's kind of one extreme of the pendulum. But there actually is another extreme of the pendulum where it's kind of like, this is kind of the individualist Western American thing. Everyone's kind of doing whatever works for them, sort of at the expense of the team and the work that has to get done. Mm. And I think what happens a lot of times is like, one of the things you hear a lot in the well-being space is that people feel like their leaders are just giving lip service to this idea and they don't really believe it. And I think if you really have the conversation with leaders of like, what are your hesitations? I think there's a hesitation around lost productivity. And so where I think there's a lot of fruitful conversation to have is to really look at the intersection of the two and say, we're not talking about having, you know, a group of people that you never know what they're doing because they're always off at the beach and whatever. <laughs> like, of course, you know, like we need to, you know, I'm being a little bit silly, but like we need to collectively align on like, what are the expectations of this team and of this individual, mm -hmm. but how do we do it in a way that's sustainable? And so I think really just like shifting the conversation such that you're always talking about the intersection of the two. I think that's actually where you get a lot of creative solutions. And an example that I, I love is at Google, this is, has been happening for over a decade. It predates my time on, on the well-being work, but the site reliability engineers who are the people who actually, you know, keep Google's data centers up and running. By definition of the role, like, you know, if a data center goes down, you have to address it within 30 seconds. It's a very fast turnaround, right? And so it has the potential to be awful if, uh, for work-life balance, but they've set up a very, very formalized call system yeah. where there's like tiers of support and 
you're on call and you're back, you know, or the same thing, like in an ER doctors and nurses and so forth. And so I think that's a really great example of where you're shifting from an individual mindset to a collective mindset. And you're saying, okay, as a group of people, we collectively need to hit these objectives. Like we need to have an ER that's always available. We need to have a data center that's always up. We're not right. going to compromise that, <laughs> but we're also human beings and we have lives and we have families. And, and there's like a certain formality and structure. And I think like everything else we do in the business world has a lot of structure. Like things don't happen by accident. Like, you know what I mean? We don't create amazing products by accident. Like we plan and we structure. And I think if we want to have teams that are performing, but in a sustainable way, we have to have conversations about it and plan around it and talk about coverage and on call and collaboration hours and whatever it might be. It's not going to happen by accident. And so I think it has to be taken more seriously. Yeah. You're reminding me of Leslie Perlow's work around predictable time off, right? But but that also does a lot around removing stigma. You know, I think that, I mean, I, I've always worked in marketing and sales functions and communications functions where the work is a little, I, don't, I haven't ever actually even worked in hard sales. So I have worked in organizations where the goals are really nebulous mm-hmm. and so outcomes are unclear and it's not the kind of job where you work a shift. So that can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about how we extend the productivity and I guess I'll just call it work-life balance conversation to teams that don't operate on a sort of, yep, I've got this shift, it's covered mentality. Because a lot of us yeah. don't work that way. And our and yes. our work is, everyone tells us our work is so collaborative, right? <laughs> so So it's like if yes. one is on, all are on. Yes. Oh, I, I love that you bring that up. Like one of the ways I think about it in very broad strokes. So, so first of all, I find team sports are very helpful. Mm. Think about this. Ironically, I'm not athletic myself. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like, I, oh, I used to play soccer competitively or whatever, but I think it's just the best analogy for the combination of performance and coordination and rest. And if you think about you know, elite sports teams, they are not just pushing all the time. Like that is like empirically bad for performance to like, you know, you can imagine a professional soccer team that's always stressed out and, you know, running sprints all the time, they would do very poorly in their game. So there's a real recognition for the need for rest and recovery in professional sports. But when you get to team sports, it's coordinated, right? And so like, if you think about that soccer team, there's coordinated periods of, you're in training, you're in the off season, you're in a game, you're on rest within a game, you have substitutions. So there's kind of this acknowledgement to your point on collaboration of you have to coordinate with other people to be able to get the collective rest and the collective productivity. It's not going to happen by accident. And so I think of like in super broad strokes, there's like two types of work. So like the one that I talked about with the site reliability engineers, that's kind of what I think of as like a relay, like you're in track and field and you're running a relay and you're passing the baton. And so that's things where it's like, all right, we need coverage. We need a handoff. You can kind of do that. And theoretically, also, not to diminish this incredibly skilled and important work, but like, if I'm a trauma surgeon in the ER, that's my job. And there's another trauma surgeon in the ER who will replace me when I'm tired. Marketing teams don't work like that. Right. And so there's kind of the relay, the the idea of substitutes, and then the difference between like a relay where you're passing the baton and 
like a crew team where you're like rowing together, you push, rest, push, rest. And it's never going to be black and white. Like a lot of teams do a lot of things, but like some kind of acknowledgement, like, are we a marketing team where we, you know, we have a big conference coming up and we need to really, we're going to be pulling late nights and weekends. But then once the conference is done, let's all take the week off. Like that's kind of a very collaborative model. Or are we more like the surgeon or the site reliability engineer and we need constant coverage and someone has to be there Christmas day, but we're going to make sure it's equitable and pass the baton. I think a lot of times it's like, you don't even have the explicit conversation. It's just like, Oh, we just, we need people around. We need people productive. It's like, well, what are we trying to accomplish? And you're right. I think most modern work is really collaborative. And so I, I'm personally a fan of, you know, a lot of companies are trying to do these like core collaboration hours. Right. And you, you hear some pushback against that of like, Oh, I just, I want to have my own schedule. But, but I think again, that's like the individualist and the collective nature of like, there needs to be some coordination and, you know, maybe it's from 10 to two every day, but like, there's kind of a set of hours where we're all going to be available to collaborate. And then there's other times where we're doing individual work or we're taking time off, like acknowledging the nature of the team, I think is really important. I've heard you talk about well-being more than I've heard you talk about mental health. And I'm curious if in your eyes, the two are different when it comes to your former role at Google or how people should think about this stuff, mental health versus well-being. I'll often go to physical health as kind of an analogy because I think it's just something that we ha- we all have such a strong intuition for. And so if I think about physical health, there's kind of like the coach trainer model of like, I'm overall healthy, but I, I want to be able to run a faster mile. I want to build up muscle mass. Like there's that core, like kind of maintaining our health. And then there's the kind of when you go into the, the clinical end, there is, hey, I have, this is my diagnosis and I need this specific treatment. And so I think, you know, likewise in mental health, we always say it's a continuum, like, and we all have mental health and we all need to be actively managing it. So I think we all need to be attending to and managing our mental health and well-being. But in our society, for whatever reason, I, I think we removed the stigma for it when it's fully a pathology. And maybe we haven't even removed that stigma yet either. Oh, yeah. Like, I so it's like, would not agree yeah. with that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, or maybe we're trying. Let me, let me restate that. Like, I, I feel like as a society, when, we, when you get to the point of like, there's a diagnosable mental illness, there's at least the movement towards like reducing the stigma for that. Yes, um, yes. And there's a lot more to go in terms of reducing the stigma and mental health, physical health, and being able to kind of support our whole health. I think the place where we sometimes ignore a little bit, like, and maybe this is the reason why I spend a little more time talking about well-being is like, even for those who don't have a diagnosable clinical mental health condition, we all have mental health. We all have well-being. And it's not like, you know, oh, I haven't been diagnosed with a specific disease, so I never have to exercise and I can eat whatever I want. Like, I think we need to be really actively managing our minds and bodies. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier with like the context in which we evolve. I think we forget we are like biological beings in biological bodies that evolved a hundred thousand years ago. Like, you know, we're not computers that you can just like update the software and try something new this decade, you know? And so I think really wherever you are on that spectrum, Mm -hmm. like really honoring and acknowledging the fullness of your mind and body is really important for your health and well-being. Did you find or do you find that when you approach executives or try to get buy-in from leaders, using it in the framework of wellness is more successful than in the framework of mental health? Because mental health is, is a term that most of us don't like because we think about mental illness. 
wellness is a little more innocuous. I guess I would make a distinction between what you are asking of the executive. Mm. You know, we need to have benefits coverage and leaves of absence that support the full spectrum of people's health needs, whether they're mental or physical. Like if that's sort of the ask, like a benefits, a time off ask, then I think you just talk about everything. Like you sort of talk about the full spectrum. And so if I go back to the sports analogy, like, you know, you have your professional soccer team and it's like, all right, we need to have a policy when someone has had a serious you know, knee injury or concussion. How do we ensure that they have the time off and the medical care that they need right. to recover? Right. I think that's like kind of one class of conversation. But then I think there's also just the, the other ask to executives. And this is where you start getting into every manager in the organization, every director, every VP, like how you run your weekly schedule is much more of that kind of ongoing maintenance mm. of just like, how do you acknowledge these are not machines doing these roles? These are biological human beings who have real brains and bodies that have needs. <laughs> That's where I think you start getting into just the kind of more pragmatic things that we spoke about earlier, that it's actually just, it's not effective if people work all the time. I think that can kind of, particularly if an executive is under a lot of pressure, as most executives are, like, you know, you need to hit your targets, you need to deliver. I think it can be really effective to just say, it's actually not an effective way to achieve that goal to work people all the time. In the same way that if you're, you know, managing a professional soccer team, if your goal is to win the World Cup, it is not effective to have your team do sprints all day every when day. Everyone's injured. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so so that's kind of the distinction I make. I think when you're when you're really strictly on the like, hey, this person has had an acute mental health episode and I need to have a six month mental health leave and coverage, like that's one conversation. But there's just like for every frontline manager how do you run your team in a sustainable way? You probably know Christina Maslow's work. She's done a lot of work on workplace burnout. And she really strongly advocates for burnout is not a characteristic of the individual. It's a characteristic of the organization. And it's a collective. It's like it's about the environment. And so, so I think that almost sidesteps any individual stigma. It's just like, how do we create an environment that's conducive to the way our, our minds actually work? There's a third element that's emerging in conversation. It's always been there. And it's interesting to me, I see it emerging in the context of generational differences. I was just quoted in an article from Business Insider that has gotten so much pickup around Mm. Gen Z is anxious at work and it's something we have to talk about. I'm summing it up. Mm. You know, and I've been writing about this for a while and a lot of people have, but, you know, There are groups at work, and there are generational differences here, that are much more comfortable saying things like, I have an anxiety disorder, and so this is what works for me, right? Mm -hmm. Really putting Mm -hmm. something on the table that is chronic, that is not acute, but that requires attention and, and being okay talking about it. This is extremely scary for a lot of people. It's threatening. It's alienating. And that's, to me, neither about sort of like keeping the team healthy for the long haul, and it's not about, you know, we need to arrange a medical leave for this person. It's really like, this is me. This is my stuff. Deal with it. Here's how we have to work. I'm curious, (laughs) like, what you think is the best way for people in our field to introduce these kinds of conversations, because I see a lot of people just getting freaked out, like, or blaming it all on Gen Z. Oh, they're all so anxious. I don't know what to do. I completely agree that there's just a huge generational shift with Gen Z in many, many ways. Like, I think just this 
radical honesty about everything, like, you know, whether it's mental health or environmental <laughs> causes and kind of what they want their workplace to be. There's this, this, this kind of unapologetic confidence that I think is, I think is going to really dramatically change the workplace yeah. for the better, because I think there's kind of just this like broad demand for this, this is what works for us and this is what doesn't. And I think things often change when they are approached in mass. And so I, th I think it's going to be really exciting to see like kind of right now it's a small percentage of the workforce, but as that grows. And these people have always been here. Like it's not right. a generational thing, but I, but I hear it happening in the context of the generations. Like how do we actually start bringing our own mental health challenges in an everyday way to work and integrating it? I do have a belief. This goes back to the individual versus collective. Mm. That in the context of work, we, we need to be able to toggle between the individual and the collective mindset. And so I think there's on the one hand, understanding this is who I am and this is how I thrive. And this is what makes things work for me and what makes me excited about my role. Like even just setting aside mental health, just more broadly, like my approach to my job. And then I think there's also just a component of kind of like, all right, like, let me look around, like what context am I, how, how am I fitting into the bigger picture I heard this phrase recently that I loved, like, what's, what's my voice in the chorus? Like, just kind of like, that. I'm not singing a solo, but I'm also not conforming. I'm really finding my voice. I'm finding my place, but I'm also part of something bigger. I think that's an element that I think is going to be really important in the workplace. Again, beyond mental health, like everything from workplace values to career growth to you name it. I think there's a really strong sense of like empowerment and individuality, but then I think it's going to be an important challenge for organizations to kind of marry that with being part of something bigger than yourself. Because I think the risk is we start getting just really fragmented. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that at its best is really beautiful about cultures and organizations is you can become more than the sum of the parts. And so kind of keeping that mindset of how do I fit into to the bigger picture? I think people should be comfortable sharing their mental health needs. I, I don't want it to be interpreted as like, don't share your individual mental health needs, get with the program. But I also think there's some component of just with this generational shift, I, I see a lot of individuality. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think we also need to really regain a healthy version of the collective. It's interesting that you're saying this to me because I'm thinking about what it must felt like for you, though, as someone who believes in this stuff and had been at Google a long time to get told you weren't needed anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting just from like a personal growth perspective, this has been such an intense and difficult and high growth, like fill in the blank year for me, just like as a human being and as a person. And one of the things that's been really cool, one of the advantages of being laid off in a cohort of 12,000 people <laughs> is, is, <laughs> is that there's 12,000 people yeah. that are going through the yeah. same thing at the same time. And one of the most beautiful parts of this year has been having a community of people to go through this with. Mm. Because I think one of the things I definitely saw in myself, and I saw this in the community overall, is like, I did not appreciate the extent to which my sense of identity was through my work. Yeah, And I think that's very common for a lot of us. I've always struggled with anxiety. I always will. I've, I've come to accept it as a friend and a companion on this journey of life. But I think we put such a strong sense of our, our identity and purpose and meaning in our jobs. But there was something about losing my job 
that really brought that into focus for me of just, of just like, you know, well, who am I outside of this? Like, who am I outside of Google? Who am I outside of being the mental health leader at Google? And it actually ended up being a pretty profound period of, you know, I did some of the deepest therapy I have done in my life. I did this year of just like, I need to go deep, like in terms of what, like, who, who am I? Who do I want to be in the world? How do I want to show up in the world? And who am I doing this for? And, and I think one of the things I'm really taking from this year is there is a part of me that is sacred and separate and is my expression as a human being on this planet that I think I had given too broad of access to that part of me in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think going forward, I really, I really believe that for each of us and certainly for myself, I need to start separating out more like, who am I as a person? Who do I want to be on this planet? And that isn't always identical to my job. And that's okay. And I think really not defining ourselves fully by our job has been a a huge part of growth for me this year. Gosh, that's amazing. Right, because you don't get a PhD in neuroscience unless you're highly identified with your professional accomplishments and career. Yeah. And for me on a personal note, like if I think about why I got the PhD in neuroscience, I think for so much of my life, I've had this sense that there is an external place where I can go to understand how it all works. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if I get a PhD in neuroscience and I understand as much as I can about the brain, then I'm going to like know how this all works, you know, like, (laughs) or maybe if I, you know, (laughs) do whatever job or, you know, and I think the thing, you know, and any kind of spiritual leader would probably chuckle hearing (laughs) me say this because it's been there all along. But like, I think the thing that I've really come to certainly this past year, and then even these past few years is there isn't this big external answer. Like, it's just like, I think in each of us, there is this sense of like, we know it when we feel it, like yeah. this, the sense of the sense of resonance, the sense of who we are and who we want to be in the world that we can follow or not follow. And I think I've gotten just much more respect for that this year of like, there isn't some external thing that someone's going to give me or I'm going to do that's going to make it all make sense. It really is just like my life and my journey. And there's something that ends up being super freeing about that because then you're like, oh, well, then I can just do that with the person down the street or my neighbor or my, you know, like it doesn't have to be like, it actually kind of oddly takes some of the pressure off. Like there's not some external thing I have to find and get. How has your relationship with your anxiety changed through this probably pretty uncertain period? Yeah. Yeah. It has been a really healing period. I mean, I will, like I said earlier, I will always be anxious. I think it's just in my physiology. This year has been a lot around really focusing on self-compassion. Like it's so funny when I was at Google, we led a whole self-compassion campaign because there's a lot of research that that is like good for everything. (laughs) But, but this has been like just the year for me of just personal self-compassion, like kind of the, the very deep, like when I feel anxious, like stopping and being like, Oh, what's going on? Like, and just like kind of in the same way you would care for a child or something like, Oh gosh, like, let's just like, all right, let's stop everything. Let's sit down. Like, you're really worried. Like, what are you worried about? And, and really like bringing just a ton of self-compassion, love, nurturing energy to myself. I think for so long, my anxiety was something 
that I felt like was a problem or that I was trying to escape or trying to manage. And I think as I've approached it with more compassion, I've, I've felt just a lot of softening around it. And so that's been a lot, a lot of my own healing this year has just been around really just changing how I interact with it and kind of approaching it with more, with more love and like, wow, there's a part of me that's really scared and it's okay. And how can I really make you feel okay? Mm. Despite what's going on. I've been thinking about this because I've been trying to be less busy this week. Mm. And it's really hard. I mean, my anxiety is so used to just filling the vacuum of space with action. And I would imagine that when you get laid off, all of a sudden you're like, oh, whoa, I've got all this time to fill. Maybe not. What was that experience like for you? I'm definitely an introvert and I, I do enjoy silence and quiet and time and space. So there's a huge part of that that I've just enjoyed. <laughs> but there have been parts of it that have felt like a void for sure. And that I think was also the thing I mentioned earlier about like this realization of like, I think we often really overburden our jobs. Like I was kind of like, I want my job to be my source of income, my sense of like meaning and purpose on this earth. It's like the way that I connect with other people. Like I just, I put so much on this one thing, you know? And so I think one of the things in terms of what you mentioned about like, Oh, now you have a lot of time. Like one of the things that was really, has been really fun for me this year has been like, I feel like I've really given myself permission to do things that aren't directly productive. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like I I love to write and like, all right, let me just like, I've been writing more just because I'm enjoying it. Like, you know, and and who knows, maybe someday that will turn into something, but it's also just something that I know makes me feel more alive and makes me feel more attuned to myself. I love to sing. I'm actually not a very good singer, but I just love it. Like I, and so I joined a choir and like, and so I really, yeah, I think particularly just because there's so much stuff externally that is negative, right? You're, there's like a lot of uncertainty, the job market's uncertain what am I doing next? What's my career? And I was like, I really want to have things that I feel like are mine that are kind of within my control for lack of a better phrase, right? Like, like I want to be really intentional about my relationships. I want to do things that just make me happy. And like, so I think I've really spent a lot more time being like, what would just feel good today? You know, I've done a lot actually with the community of Googlers who were laid off, like different peer support groups and sessions kind of processing like the emotions of, of losing a job. And it's one of those things where it's been so healing for me to summarize, like, here's all the emotions I've gone through this year and then bring them into a group setting and interact with people around them. That's not a means to any end, right? It's just something that feels really alive when I do it. And so that's been something that's been so unexpected and kind of beautiful about this year is I feel like it was this like midlife pause where I was forced to just like step away from everything and just sort of be like, all right, what would actually bring you joy? Just by good fortune, there's, I don't know if you've heard of this book, Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. I had just happened to have read that at the start of the new year, like a couple of weeks before I was laid off. And that book is all about really turning inward and finding out who you are and how to express that in the world. And that book has just been such a guide for me throughout this year of just uncertainty and kind of reframing that as like, all right, how do I want to live in the world? When you or other ex-Googlers that you've worked with this year, I would imagine that sometimes though, you bump up against old stories like feelings of shame or like, why me or any of those? I mean, yeah, I know that a lot of really experienced senior people got laid off at Google. And that 
must have been full of like feelings, like hard feelings. Yeah. I'm just curious when any self-blaming feelings came up this year, what's been your experience in, in, in how to deal with those or how to sort of negotiate with those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think there's a ton of shame in terms of losing your job and just sort of feeling like, wait, is there something I could have done differently? Was it me? Even even as much as you understand the broader context of, you know, oh, it's, you know, how the priorities were set and what you were working on and everything. Mm-hmm. I certainly went through that. And as I that's so common as you talk with other people who have gone through this. And one of the things that I have found to be really helpful is like I wrote about this on LinkedIn is kind of acknowledging our lack of control. I think a lot of people that become anxious achievers or, (laughs) or, you know, kind of enter this world, you know, the rough rule of thumb, if I work really hard, things will work out has like roughly worked for them. Not to say that their lives have been perfect. And so I think sometimes, even though intellectually we know, of course, things, life is not in our control. And of course, the universe is random. I think on some level, we don't really believe that. And we're like, well, for me, like, <laughs> as long as I work hard, everything, you know, everything should work out. Or as long as I anticipate the worst or just like worry all the time oh, or yeah. just never stop, I'll just somehow, you know, worry. Yeah, totally. I love that. I love that. Cause I actually, at least for me, like a lot of my anxiety is around, yeah, mitigation mm-hmm. of the unknown, right. right? Like if I can just anticipate it, it won't Defensive hurt. Defensive pessimism you know? is our specialty. Defensive pessimism. Exactly. I'm, I'm an expert in that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think one of the things that's been helpful for me and for other people I've talked with is just like, an acknowledgement of like, yeah, there's a lot we don't control. And we we know that intellectually, but I think a lot of times we don't know that in our bones and we don't know that viscerally that like, you know, bad things happen to good people all the time. Like that's kind of just how it works. And so I think for me, there was actually something really freeing about like, you know, I think this was bigger than me. I don't think if I had done XYZ differently the outcome would have been any different. Like, I think there was just like bigger factors at play than my own little life. And I think there's actually something oddly freeing about that. Like, cause I, I just kind of like letting go, like I actually don't control everything and building up this capacity to be like, but I can like take what I'm confronted with and learn from it and grow because of it. And there's kind of a lot of, a lot of healing that comes from that. Well, and give to others. I mean, just to round this out, your whole point throughout the episode of the individual versus the collective, yeah. I think is really powerful here in that like, yeah, you know what, this is not about me and I can be part of a community to make change and support each other. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I can't fix work. I can't fix the economy. I can't fix Google's forecasts. <laughs> right, just... right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that is honestly, I, you know, I think one of the things a, a lot of people talk about, and I, I've seen this, in my, like, like, I feel like a lot of my really close friends I met in my 20s, and then we you stay in touch, but you don't meet a lot of close friends. I'm in my 40s. Like, you don't meet a lot of close friends. And this year, I feel like I've met so many new close mm. friends because it's just like, you're kind of all going through this. Like, I thought my life was going this way and now it's going that way. And I don't know how that feels. And it has just been so phenomenal to just see this community form and people hold each other up and watch people grow and change. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the a stereotype, but it's true. Like we do grow through difficult times. And, and so, yeah, I feel like this whole experience has just given me a huge appreciation for community and community is something we can always have. Like, you know what I mean? It might not be through your job, but you can volunteer or you can have it through your neighborhood. It's, it's sort of, it's free. <laughs> you know, it's something anyone can have and just the, the power of community. 
That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.